Hello and welcome to Ely Saying Something. As promised, here's the first of our general election themed episodes for November 2019. Tonight, we're in conversation with James Bull, he's Labour's candidate for South East Cambridgeshire. Let's hear what he's got to say. Hello, James Bull, welcome to Ely Saying Something. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. James, easy question to start with. How did you become interested in politics? Okay, well, um, there's a story that I like to tell. Um, When I first went out to work, I uh, worked in the public sector. And on my first day of the job, my mum said to me, two pieces of advice. Join the pension scheme, join the union. At that time, at that age, I didn't really have a clue what a union was. But, of course, I took her advice. I joined the union. Over time, of course, working in the public sector, getting an understanding on how public services are delivered and becoming more aware of uh, a trade union's role in the workplace what it, and what it can do for workers, I naturally gravitated towards that. I got more involved. I became an activist and then a steward within my union branch, which was Unison at Cambridge City Council. Okay. That was. Um, And as I said, working in the public sector, I worked in housing, seeing how local services are delivered and also the political will behind how those services are managed, the relationship that, for example, elected councillors have with determining um, priorities around services and funding. I think that sort of awoke uh, a, a broader understanding and awareness of local politics at first. Yeah. But I think it was really when the austerity cuts hit in 2010, working for the public sector, being an activist with a union, that really crystallised my feelings around politics, um, really opened up my eyes, I think, to how a political will can have such an incredible and in some cases damaging effect on the fabric of our whole society, our whole economy, that I felt I had to become active and with the views I held, the views that I developed working in the public sector, being a union member. Um, socialism, labour movement, politics was, of course, the natural home for me. OK. And what are you most passionate about? I think as an extension of that last question, it, it kind of leads on to that. I think this idea that society is not something that's done to us, but something that we shape is something I'm passionate about, and that's what guides me, really, through politics. As I said, that's why I became a union activist and then a Labour Party activist. Um, the status quo, you know, I don't think it is something that we should consider fixed in place for a reason other than it being determined by choices that are made often uh, right at the top. Okay. And going on from that, most people listening to this, most people you'll meet on the doorstep and in the streets and in the market squares, they're not members of a political party. Why did you join a party? I think that naturally for me, it it was an easy choice really because socialist and labour movement politics and the values that go with those, um, they align very closely with my own personal values. Um, I remember reading an interview with, uh, is it Johnny Marr, the guitarist from Of the Smiths, Smiths? if you're a man of a certain age and I am, (laughs) uh, yes it is Johnny Marr. Where he said that um, someone gave him a book on socialism um in his 20s and it was a no-brainer for him because he said it was just um a something that 
put into writing all the things he thought that normal, well-minded people believed anyway about sharing, about community, about helping those less fortunate um, than yourself. And the fact that it had a name and it was called socialism was almost kind of uh, a technicality that the, yeah. the values that embody that, that it embodies are that's what matters and that's what well let's go with that then because i'm sure you're aware uh, the smiths are one of david cameron's favorite bands <laughs> so um most people would share those values i think though yeah they don't necessarily gravitate towards socialism or even labor i mean did you no. ever flirt with joining another party i mean when I was a student in the late 90s, early 2000s, I suppose, before I'd really kind of had my political awakening, if you want to call it that, yeah. um, you know, having lived through the 90s, grown into adulthood in the 90s, relative period of peace, yeah. stability, economic growth, compared to the kind of things we see in the world today, you could say it was a little bit of a golden age, maybe. The thing that was really... Um, in the forefront of the mind of students at that time was a, was tuition fees. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of students gravitated towards the Lib Dems at the time, um, but it wasn't necessarily because of a strong sense of values, party values. It was just they were offering something that most students had a stake in. Um, Anything and, for free sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> like free bell, free free broadband yeah. couldn't yeah. resist. Okay, so beyond that, then you've, mm. you've gone in the whole hog now. You've you've been uh, active within a trade union. You've yeah. worked for a trade union. That's um, right. You now want to be an MP. Yes. Okay. Um, two questions. Let's bang them together. Why do you want to be an MP, and why do you want to be our MP? Yeah. Okay. And I think it's good that you ask those as separate questions because there is a kind of a distinct difference between the general question. Mm of the role and then thanks for that, spotting my trap and what, and what that role means specifically for a representative of South East Cambridgeshire yeah um, so I'll start with the first one go on then um, it's for me a belief a strong belief in democracy and I think even more so now that democracy is a little bit damaged and fragile right now in this country for a number of reasons um, and as I said I think the best way to change society um is through democratic means and I believe in what I stand for with real conviction and I think I have the ability to articulate those views in a way that I feel people will understand and connect with and I think ultimately we've all got a role to play in improving society and I feel that this this role is mine okay so why do you want to be our MP? Yeah, well, I mean, South East Cambridgeshire is my home. That's the easy answer to give there. Um, and I know that all parties are obviously guilty of parachuting candidates into safe seats. It's been going on for since the beginning of politics, really. Yeah. But, um, I think there is a value in having a local candidate who was born and raised in the area that understands the identity of... Um, a constituency and understands what it means to live there really um, and I hope if I can bring my local experience and understanding to politics that in some small way I'd be promoting and contributing to that idea of having more ordinary local people standing in parliament and I've always felt that that is the antidote to a lot of the distrust that people have for so-called careerist politicians let's let's get on to that then mm. um, i'm gonna i'm gonna stretch things a bit sure right, if we go with the we'll end with the 2019 general election but let's go right back to the 2009 european election yeah if you live in england 
this will be the ninth national level poll mm. over those years. If you're in Scotland and Wales, which we're not, but if we were, there'd be yeah. one more, um, at True, least one yes. more. Um, yeah. Have some people got polling fatigue? Have we had too much democracy? It's feeling that way, isn't it? Um, there's a lot of... Um... Well, not for you, because you're clearly excited <laughs> about it. Uh, but yeah. you know, for no, some but, of us, yeah. Yeah, it, it, you get that impression talking to people, of course. And I've been out on the doorstep a lot over the last few weeks talking to people. Um, people are engaged with issues that they care about, as they are all year round. Um, but it's, it's a strange situation to find ourselves in, where we have had this thing the so-called fixed-term Parliament Act yeah. that was supposed to set a five-year cycle for elections, um, primarily to prevent opportunism by uh, an incumbent government um, unleashing an election at a point where they felt they could capitalise on the result. Uh, but as you say, we've, we're now in a boat where we've had three general elections since 2015, if you include the one we, yep. <laughs> we're about to have in a few weeks. Um, and two of those resulted in hung parliaments. And I think that, and of course, Brexit, have a big role to play. It, it feels as if um, the, the systems in place that operate and manage our democracy, things like first past the post, um, and even the, the fixed term parliament act, are not aligning well with the realities of, of how people are voting and the choices they're making. Wow, I'm really interested to hear you say that. So you're saying that you would support some form of electoral reform? I'm going to say it. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far yet, but the idea interests me. Okay. I know that traditionally the bigger parties, Labour and the Tories, have, you know, rightly or wrongly, preferred to stick with the tried and tested system. And for the long t longest time that, that did seem to work, but... You know, I, I think we are in uncharted waters now and who knows what the future might bring. Certainly the direction of travel is Euro elections in, in the UK for as long as we've had mm. have them um, are done on under some form of PR. Yeah. As are the uh, the Scottish and Welsh regional elections. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got we've got we've got we're moving beyond that. So you wouldn't be closed minded to that. that I wouldn't be closed minded to it. I think that fundamentally you need to, to have a functioning democracy. You have to have systems in place that um, reflect the, the way that people choose to participate and interact with politics. And if something's not working and it feels a little bit like, you know, as I said, with, with various hung parliaments and uh, snap elections, yeah. um, something isn't working quite right at the moment. If you look at the breadth and range of opinion, Mm. across a nation and you'll have some sense of that when, you, when you're out on the stump at the moment Sure, it's surely absurd to say that the entire breadth of opinion can be held in two huge broad churches I mean we, we did see a lot of people gravitating towards the two big parties in 2017 Yeah, and there is some polling trends even now just the few weeks we are into this election that seem to be showing the same thing um, towards ever thus though but that, that's the system we're in isn't it it's first past the post yeah, yeah, under PR true, um, yeah. the two behemoths if you like Labour mm. and the Tories you know they might look and feel very different yeah. at that time but hey we're into speculation let's talk yeah. about reality sure the okay. constituency you're running for was created in 1983 since then no one has come close to unseating the incumbent MP is it really different this time I mean I think that 
to call it a Tory sofa seat was certainly true for the 20th century. Yeah. Um, but I think those old 20th century political divisions that were very much on the basis of class and geography um, are falling away a bit now. The, the demographics that we're looking at across the country and even right here in southeast Cam's are changing quite dramatically and have changed quite dramatically over a short space of time. Um, so much of that is down to things like um, housing costs, commuting costs, ability to even be able to commute between places. Um, we've seen a lot of people who perhaps would have preferred to have settled and lived in the city who've been priced out because of the, the massive housing affordability crisis uh, moving out to the surrounding villages. and uh, um, Which has an effect here in those surrounding villages. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, we see a, a, a change to the demographics as a result of that. Um, but then also we see some quite different divisions also in how people have, have voted in, in recent elections. I think if you look at the last general election, huge divisions between the under and over 40s, for example. Yeah, I was listening to a sophologist on The Spectator, podcast the other day apologies but I was and uh, he was saying that class is no longer the big dividing line no. it's actually age absolutely I'd agree and apparently the age at which you're most likely to consider voting conservative is 47 mm. and I turned 47 earlier this year so it, it, <laughs> I'm it, sorry it, to hear that then oh, oh thanks very much thanks very much but, uh, in the interest of balance you can vote for who you like okay right so that leads me to my next topic. Sure, yeah. How can we broaden the range of people who take an active interest in politics? Let me give you some context for that. Um, mm. There have been some excellent um, events here in Ely over the last uh, few weeks and months. Uh, Ely for Europe um, ran a fantastic rally at the Lighthouse Centre not so long ago. Speakers from across the nation, interesting people. Great turnout, absolutely great turnout. Um, I went to the Ely Cathedral Business Group's uh, Climate Change Forum recently. Um, but... It struck me that whilst there were many people there, and some of my closest friends, yeah, some of the people I know, some of the people I work with or work for, weren't there. I mean, how can we get more people involved? I mean, I think that that's something I touched on a little bit in one of the other answers. I, I still feel that in order for people to take that more active interest, they need to see more of themselves reflected in politics. But we still don't really have that. You look at the makeup of the House of Commons. Um, even the kind of the obvious things you can see just by by looking at who is represented there, um, there aren't enough women in no. the House of Commons. There's not enough um, diversity in the House of Commons. Just that... as every disability isn't visible, mm. a lack of diversity isn't always visible. No. So uh, diversity is not just about gender or sexuality or colour. No, of course. Diversity is about, well, did your parents go to university? Did absolutely, you go to university? Yeah. Do you work with your hands? Yeah. yeah no, what's absolutely. your level of educational ent attainment? Mm. Yeah, that's really difficult to achieve. Yeah. Uh, is Labour onto that? Can Labour do that? Uh, well, br broaden the Yeah, broaden the participation, yeah. I think so. I think we're best placed among the parties to do that, to be honest. I mean, if you look at some of the candidates we've got standing uh, for this election, a real um, wide diverse range of people of all ages backgrounds ethnicities um and i think also a a, a a more of a voice i think of this it sounds like a horrible kind of cliche to keep saying but you know ordinary working people and what i mean by that is people who perhaps didn't go straight from a university degree in politics philosophy and economics 
into being a junior advisor to a politician. Yeah. Um, people who have worked in public sector jobs or have worked in offices or have, um, I don't know, driven taxis or um, worked in a shop, to see people who have lived a life away from that bubble of politics, and it is a bubble, really, yeah. and then after having developed a story and a life away from that, to then bring that experience into politics by participating um, at a later stage, you know, not perhaps entering politics as a professional, so to speak, right away after university, I think that is a strength amongst our candidates that, that Labour have got standing uh, in this general election. Let's hope so. Okay, so let's cast things forward. Sure. Let's say an upward trend happens uh, amongst Labour support and you romp home and you've got a majority government. Okay, What would you like to see set in motion during the first 100 days of a Labour government? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out a little quote here. Go on. It's one that I'm sure we've all heard said before, but it is a fantastic quote. It's a Gandhi quote. And it's that the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. Yeah. And just three big issues that come to mind in relation to that quote are the rise, the dramatic rise in rough sleeping, in food bank usage, in child poverty. I think those are the three big concerns that any right-minded person should have about our society today. The fact that we are the seventh richest economy in the world and yet we have seen record increases in those three things. The first hundred days of a Labour government, in my mind, is focused on dealing with issues like that. Putting in place day one changes, transformative changes, to really tackle those worrying, really worrying problems in our society. Excellent. Okay. And even if we, and I should say, even if we can't solve them in a hundred days, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. No, okay, so that's one. So the three issues then, sorry, yeah, that's homelessness, sorry. food bank usage, yeah. and child yeah. poverty. Okay, yeah, so it's three sure. related issues. Mm, right, so that's yeah. the government. So essentially, you want to go right from the base. You yeah. want to tackle poverty at... I, th I don't, I don't think we can even consider ourselves, you know, the, the party of delivering social justice unless we go in hard and tackle those issues right from day one. Okay, now that's the government. What about you? What does your first 100 days as an MP look like? Yeah, and I, I suppose that depends on whether it's in government or opposition. But um, in government, it is about delivering what I think is probably the most exciting manifesto that Labour have had since 1945. Um, I've, I've picked out a few examples, things that I would look at as what I would call kind of instant day one changes. And I can talk a little bit about what I feel they would achieve. So one big one for me is the £10 minimum wage. Um, I just saw a stat today, 26% of people living in East Anglia earn below a £10 minimum wage. Um, in some cases, considerably below that. Um, for them, that change overnight would be dramatic. Not, hang, not having to necessarily worry every day about bills, about whether you're going to pay the rent or pay the heating bill or put shoes on your child. Um, school uniforms, whatever else. It's, it, it's that kind of transformative day one stuff that excites me about what we would deliver. On a similar note, abolishing tuition fees. Again, it can be implemented day one, but the knock-on effect that will have on society to 
to open up the doors of um, university education to anyone, irrespective. Sorry, James. Tuition fees. You're saying you would abolish tuition fees. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for me, that again, as I said, this is one of those instant day one changes from the from the Labour manifesto that I think would be transformative from day one of a Labour government to open up university education to everybody and to have to give students that ability to look at education not as something with a price tag attached to it is an incredibly valuable thing that we can offer and we can change. Um, another one I think is the establishment, this is also an education one, is establishing a national education service and I love that that of course has echoes of a national health service. It instantly elevates the importance of education, puts it right up there with health. You know, if you think of, you know, the right to um, health, having it, you know, to having your health, the right to, you know, housing, shelter, and the right to having access to education. These are real pillars of our society, or they should be. And I think establishing a national education service, um, doing away with uh, the um, academisation and cuts to our um, state education sector, reversing those cuts. Um, I saw a statistic recently that we now have the largest primary school class sizes um, in Europe. Um, giving that kind of um, status to education, putting it right up there with health, I think would be a fantastic achievement. If, if, that, if there was one thing this potential future Labour government was remembered for, that could be one of the big ones, you know, that 40 years, 50 years in the future, people are still celebrating the National Education Service. So you're saying education, education, education? <laughs> I might be. Okay, <laughs> right. Um, we'll touch on education again in a sure, second, yeah. in an ultra-local style. But yeah. before that, what about the NHS? What? Mm. What's your vision for the NHS? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, this leads on a little bit from the last one. I was talking about how, you know, having, you know, healthcare free at the point of access, that is still the gold standard for healthcare. It's still a model that is looked at by other countries in the world. Um, but on the flip side, speaking of other countries in the world, we have to look at um, across the Atlantic to the American system, where fascinating to see you know, uh, left-wing politicians like Bernie Sanders rightly championing the NHS and saying, you know, this is the kind of model we should have in America. And then right-wing politicians like Donald Trump effectively calling our NHS a kind of a, a dangerous socialist disaster that he would not want to touch with a barge pole. Um, our vision for the NHS, it's a simple one, to adequately fund it which has not happened for the last decade, um, to boost that funding well above what even the Tories claim to be their pledge. I know they're pledging big money to go into some public services in this election, and you know, frankly, it's refreshing to go into an election where both parties are trying to outspend each other. Uh, but we are the party that has the real commitment to properly fund the NHS, and to not do it by tying one hand of the NHS behind its back by continuing to allow this rampant privatisation and outsourcing to continue within the NHS, which makes it very difficult for it to function as an effective uh, public service. Okay. There's always been a partnership between the private sector and the public sector in health, though, hasn't there? I mean, dentists don't work for the NHS. They contract their services, I believe. Yes. And GPs will have private income. 
Yeah. Okay. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think it's about finding the right tool for the job. Um, and I've always thought that with the whole debate around um, nationalisation and privatisation, you know, I, no one is suggesting all of one or all of the other. Although I do sometimes worry that the Tories would, some Tories would quite like to see everything privatised. Um, I think that you're looking to really kind of um, have the, give the right job almost to the right area. And, and sure, there are things probably around research and science and technology that the private sector can do quite well and quite effectively. But in terms of actual service delivery out to patients, that face-to-face um, direct delivery of the health service, that belongs in the public sector quite squarely. Okay. Now, some people say the NHS doesn't link well to social care. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, the fact is social care in this country is, is in crisis. There, you know, there are no shortage of crises. We've got housing, we've got uh, rough sleeping, child poverty, what, what have you more could be added to that list. But social care is genuinely in crisis. Um, local authorities play a big role in the delivery of social care and have done for some time now. Um, but they have less and less money to spend on it and significantly less money than they did in 2010. Um, local government budgets budgets have been raided year in year out for the last decade. I think it's about fifty uh, p in the pound has been lost from the local government coffers since twenty ten, um, and we're in a situation now, of course, where the, the social care is only provided to those on the lowest incomes or with low levels of savings, and and the majority of people are expected to fund it from their own pocket, and it's a it's an it's a slow ticking time bomb that is, is building and building and unless a government is willing to do something drastic which I think Labour um, are willing to do by setting up a national care service um, and not relying on overstretched and poor quality private contractors for service delivery um, and one or two I think who have collapsed and have been un- unable to continue delivering services over the last few years to have it properly delivered by our local authorities working of course in partnership with the NHS proper provision of free personal care as a universal basic provision to to support those who need it not just those who are in most need that's absolutely key isn't it because you, you've touched on some big topics there you've touched on the health you've touched on education um, and and various things there, but, but some people will always have more access to those. There's inequality in our society. How would you address inequality? Um, I think that we have historically been in a situation in this country where um, a lot of a lot of the framing of inequality is around treating. Um, our society, our economy is a bit like a ladder. You know, you, you start at the bottom and you climb your way up. Social mobility, yeah. Well, quite. Um, although I'm not necessarily convinced that that concept is, ha- has worked very well, um, especially when it plays out against a backdrop of, you know, a quite a, a sort of a capitalist market-driven uh, economy and society. Um, you know, this idea that we can only better ourselves by kind of climbing out of our place of origin... Um, doesn't really help those who get left behind. 
that I think has been the, the problem with social mobility, which I think we can almost now write off as a bit of a failed concept, at least in 21st century Britain under a Tory government. Um, I mean, I think it should be fine and, and right for any young person uh, from any background, whether that be a working class family or otherwise, to access education and to develop a career in, in whatever they choose and, and climb that so-called ladder. That's a right for anyone. But I think those opportunities shouldn't come at the expense of the people who can't or won't follow that path. Uh, someone on a minimum wage should still be entitled to a good quality of life, to decent housing, affordable cost of living, uh, free access to the best healthcare and education, should they want that or need to access that um, at any point in their life. I think that for too long we've kind of framed our society around this idea of aspiration, um, and that's been a very popular concept for the Conservatives historically. Um, but it's a concept that speaks to, I think, sort of neoliberal capitalist thinking, you know, that, that life is a bit like a competition and we're all kind of competing against each other and that for one person to succeed, another, you know, dozen or so must fail. And I don't think that's the sort of society I really want to see. OK, but you tell me you're down on aspiration. I think the, the concept of it was probably sound um, in the past, but because of the way our economy is structured now, it, the concept has become poison, really. And as I said, we have this notion of competition, which in certain areas is effective. I think in certain areas of, of private business, of science and technology, um, you know, a healthy competition between... Um, people who or organisations who are kind of trying to, you know, achieve probably does push them on to do more and, and, and develop more. But to the plight to apply that rule to our society when it comes to issues around, you know, people's access to services and, and to education and, and health and basic um, dignity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think it's wrong to apply that thinking. Okay. to a social framework as opposed to a kind of a more economic kind of business framework. Okay. Climate change. Mm. Fortunately, I don't believe there's anyone standing who denies climate change, okay? <laughs> but um, what practical measures would you introduce to tackle climate change? I mean, one of Labour's big commitments going into this election is zero carbon by 2030. The details of how we reach that and how we do that are more complex, but I think setting um, setting a target uh, in the in that first instance, um, that's really um, that's really key. And um, sorry, that's okay. So the targets are all very well, and I think all the parties will lock heads and shout yeah. different targets at each other. I'm, I'm just wondering, what are the practical measures? Yeah. That okay. Each sure. Of you to introduce. Yeah. That, that no. could actually bring about real change. Well, something Labour's talking about is a green tech industrial revolution, which I think is quite an exciting concept because it does a number of different things, and I think it it allows us to almost kind of reframe big parts of our infrastructure or economy to work towards that goal and you know 2030 would be a very ambitious goal um but uh, you know imagine the kind of drive and ambition that would be required to get there coming from you know the science engineering research sectors 
um, to, uh, to, to really kind of develop new technologies, build new infrastructure, almost kind of repurpose our, um, our energy economy towards a whole new renewable energy outlook. Um, something that occurred to me uh, uh, that I think, I think it really encapsulates this, uh, this concept of this green tech industrial revolution um, and the zero carbon target of 2030. I, to me, it's a little bit like uh, JFK and the space race. Okay, so bear with me on this tangent. Because yeah, there was a lot of carbon uh, <laughs> emitted in that. But go on. Into the space. Yeah. So he, when, when America got into the space race, um, the idea of you know, landing a man on the moon by the end of the decade, it seemed unachievable and crazy. The Russians were well ahead at that point. Um, yeah. And America was behind in the space race, effectively. But JFK gave a very memorable speech um, and there's a line in that speech when he set out their ambition to reach the moon, you know, to hit that target. He said, we choose to do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Yeah. And I think the point he was making that is sometimes in a society, if you set a challenge and a target to meet, it brings out the best in that society. Yeah. And I think that green tech industrial revolution, it could be our moonshot as a society. Because imagine if we if we achieved that, if we did revolutionise our energy sector, we developed these new technologies, we had a whole new generation of scientists and engineers um, that were able to pull this off. Once we had achieved that, think what they could do next. You know, we would be the world leader in science and technology and research by that point. It's like a multiplier effect. Absolutely. It? You know, I, th and I think... That sounds like an aspiration. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? And it I think does. perhaps that, you know, perhaps in fairness, that, that shows why aspiration, as I said, in the realm of, you know, research, development, business technology, it probably does have a role there. But those things I said about applying it to our kind of social... Yeah, does, does, doesn't competition... Dis there's a, a distinct difference. Doesn't competition have a role, though, in, in producing that innovation, the, the green tech revolution? Perhaps, although in a you could argue we're competing against ourselves. You know, we, uh, you know, the the climate emergency is, um, you know, a, it's not going to go away. You no. know, it is there on the horizon. It is moving towards us, just as we are moving towards it, and that, that there is a competition, if you want to call it that, uh, with our survival. <laughs> you know, it's either either we win or um, the climate crisis wins. Yeah, and that, that is an incentive to act, isn't yes, it? Yes, uh, absolutely. Is right, okay, um, related then, utilities. Yes. Should they be returned to public ownership? I think that the, the, the issue with nationalisation is it has to be the right services. Okay. And I think the ones that Labour have, have highlighted, particularly our railways, our mail service, our uh, water and energy, are, in my view... Um, perfect examples of services that will operate much much better run nationally in the public interest and let me take um, railways as an example because I think that's a that's a good model to demonstrate why the current model the privatized model doesn't work well I mean I'm I'm a little bit biased because I am a commuter I travel on the train daily yep and I witness delays and overcrowding and um, infrequent services um, 
you know, sometimes quite old clapped out carriages and um, although we supposedly now have Wi-Fi on, on some of the trains, uh, it, it's a bit of a hit and miss affair whether you can even connect to it in more cases than not. Um, and yet the ticket prices keep going up year on year, well above inflation, well above real earnings. And we are painfully aware that a good chunk of that money is not invested back into the service, that it is gobbled up in shareholders' pockets. Yeah, so replacing a public monopoly with a private monopoly is probably not the brightest idea. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the concept of competition, that the, you know, the, the, um, this idea of the market will find a way, hmm. um, it's ludicrous to think how that can really apply to something like a railway, you know, unless you've built five railway lines in parallel to one another and ran rival services to find which one was better. Yeah, I, um, I remember the late Tony Venn once <laughs> saying that you know, the railways weren't nationalised out of ideology. Absolutely not. They were, they were, they were nationalised because they were bankrupt and there was a need to yeah, provide yeah. a, a national-level network. Yeah, yeah. They, they were historically underinvested in, I think. Um, but you need to just look at the, the European example more often than not. Look at the way the trains run and operate. Um, in most other mainland European countries, and you you see an uh, you know a a, a mirror, um, not a mirror, an opposite mirror, an inverse, in, yeah, yes, quite inverse, a, yeah. through the looking glass. Mirror. Okay, now um, we're coming towards the end, and you've you've mentioned the E word, yeah, of Europe. So I think that gives me license to bring it up. Now I'm going to go about this a different way. There are there sure. are there are groups here in in the constituency who lobby hard about Europe. So it's mm. not really my place. Yeah. However, I I want you to foresee a time. Mm. when the nation's actually resolved its relationship with Europe, how then do we resolve our relationship with ourselves? There's some real big divisions have been highlighted by the whole Brexit phenomenon. Yes. How can we act to heal those divisions within our communities? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. As you say, it's, it, we're so focused on the kind of day-to-day -day challenges of Brexit that we don't think about the future um, as much as perhaps we should. And I think the only way to... Um, you know, have an effective, you know, post-Brexit Britain is to really tackle the issues that I think led to Brexit in the first place. Um, and one of those is that we do have, you know, still, we still have a politics and an economics that is very London-centric. You know, I think if we could get some money and investment out of London, not at the expense of London, but to share more widely out to the regions, out to the devolved... Um, you know the the devolved nations of the UK that we would start to see um, at least some improvement, uh, but we also need to do the the work that goes with that. You know, developing all the kind of technical and transport infrastructure to enable better links across the country, um, both for people, for business. But I think, and this is perhaps the the most radical thing I'll say tonight. So there's a then. nice little uh, cherry to hang out there in front of you. Um, I think we need to give more spending power and more decision-making power to the regions of Britain. I think that's the only way to really confront this problem. And I think looking out to the future, I could foresee a time, and this is something I think Gordon Brown actually has advocated recently, a federal UK. Uh, something where that looks a bit more like each region and or nation within the United Kingdom, almost functioning, you know, it's not necessarily the word I would prefer to use, but functioning a bit like a state. 
yeah. with its own powers about making local laws, local tax rules, local spending rules. Um, we have the most centralised government and decision-making um, mechanism here in Britain um, than perhaps the whole of Europe. So you're saying and you want to see more connection, you want to empower people or enable them to feel more connected to decisions that affect their life, yeah? Yeah, but also to be making them there locally in the yeah. places where they live as well. I mean, you look at some of the challenges our local authorities face, even, you know, we've just set up this combined authority here in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. But if you look at the actual devolved powers they have, the actual controls they have over local spend, investment, infrastructure whatever else, it's very, very limited. All the big decisions and power are still concentrated in Westminster. And I think until we can kind of, you know, break that down a little bit and share that power, those powers, those um, powers to, you know, spend and, and invest across the whole country, we will still see a bit of a them and us. Okay. Um, and I think it's that division that, that people feeling ignored and left out and, and isolated in some of the most kind of forgotten and, and uh, underrepresented, underinvested communities. That was one of the things that led to Brexit in the first place. I can relate that back to one of my earlier questions, which is how can we broaden the range of people who take an active interest in politics? I think what you're saying to me then is if you can actually give people more power over their own lives, they'll want to play a much Absolutely. bigger part in that. Yeah. James, what a great note to end on, your vision for a federal <laughs> Britain. Okay, <laughs> Wish you and for balance all the other candidates well throughout the rest of the campaign. We've been Ely saying something. If you're Ely saying something, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. So, that was James Bull of Labour. He set out his strong belief in democracy. He told us how he would deal with poverty, and he claims that Labour's manifesto this time is their most exciting since 1945. He talked about a national education service and a federal Britain that's less London-centric. For balance, of course, we'll be speaking to all of the candidates for the South East Cambridgeshire constituency over the next few weeks. Look out for the next podcast later this week. If you've been nearly saying something, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.